continue to make much of you, to, um, to give you all the glory and the praise and the honor that are due you. And uh, God, we thank you that for these truths that we've been singing this morning, these gospel truths of who you are and uh, your good character and, um, and what you think of us, your friends, your children. And God, I thank you that um, as a result of you um, adopting us, um, as a result of you first justifying us, declaring us innocent, that, uh, that you do hold your children fast, that you are a, um, a covenant-making, promise-keeping God who will never leave nor forsake your children. And I thank you, God, that you are um, a God who also um, allows, or dare I say, cause storms in our life, but that even in that, that, that you um, answer us, you speak to us um, in the midst of the storms, that you are truly an ever-present help in time of trouble, and um, you are um, an ever-present God even in times of, of calm. And so, Lord, we just uh, we want to make much of you this morning. Uh, God, I thank you for this, uh, this beautiful book of Job. I thank you for, in your providence and in your kindness, placing it in the, uh, the canon of Scripture, that we can uh, learn so much about who you are. And in many ways, we can see ourselves in Job or maybe even in his three friends in some way. So, God, please uh, just instruct us this morning. May we make much of you. Would you instruct us? May we leave here um, more in awe of and more in love with um, you, the one who loved us first. And God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning. So uh, for those of you that are new with us, we are in uh, uh, the book of Job. This is our seventh sermon in an eight-sermon series. There's 42 chapters in the book of Job. Um, we're going to be knocking off two of them today, chapter 40, verse 6 through chapter 42, verse 6. And I'm going to be bringing up um, Lori Shewitt in just a, a few minutes to read that scripture. Uh, but I want, to, I want to first just kind of unpack it a little bit. Just, um, it, it's a lot to read and to, uh, to preach on and actually to absorb as listeners and learners um, over, over uh, eight weeks. And um, before we get started, some of you are going to want to go right to um, two creatures that are mentioned in these two 
chapters, the behemoth and the leviathan. Um, it's just, I mean, it's just kind of the way we're made, I think. I will start skimming through and go, well, who is the behemoth? What is this? Was that a, was that a hippopotamus? What was that? Was it a leviathan? Was it a, uh, a three-headed monster or was it actually um, a crocodile? And, um, and I would say, I would submit that to you for your own study, but at the end of the day, it's not significant, actually. Um, it's not significant at all to the context of, of this book. Um, what's more important than, than um, what these creatures were is what did they represent, why are they in these passages? What do they represent? What is the, the heart and the context uh, that the narrator wants us to understand? And we'll, hopefully we'll unpack that a little bit. I want to ask you um, if you have ever met someone uh, for the first time that you had heard about over the years. And you had a certain impression. You'd heard about that person. Maybe you heard bad things about that person. Um, and then when you met them, it's like, Wow. And you spend time with them, you go, wow, they're, they're actually um, not, not, now that I get to see them and live life with them, they're, they're not really what I, uh, what I heard about. They're different. And um, in the same way, there's, there's people, I heard somebody say recently, that, like uh, John Piper, John Piper's like a real like, charismatic, boisterous, unction-filled preacher, and somebody met him in person and go, wow, he's just kind of calm and nice. And not that they didn't think he was nice, but he was calm and and just uh, soft-spoken. And so, um, yeah, so keep that in mind. We're going to, Job is going to experience this. Job, I want to lay this right in front. Job is a genuine believer. And if you don't grab a hold of that while you're studying through the book of Job, you're going to miss the whole, you're going to miss the whole point. Because this is a book to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And, and like any, um, any section of Scripture, God can use it in the non-believer's life, but it really is for those. Job is a believer. And what's happening to Job is in the context or the realm of a man that is a servant of the God Almighty. So it's important, it's important to uh, remember that. I'm going to give you just a quick review of where we've been because it's been like drinking from a fire hose in some respects. This is a beautiful story. The first two chapters and the last chapter are, are, are uh, prose, they're narrative, and the in, be- in between chapters is really poetry or wisdom. In the first two chapters, we got a glimpse behind the heavenly curtain where we got to see um, God and Satan conversing. And Satan was, um, was going to and fro, and God offered up um, Job to Satan. God offered up Job and said, have you considered my, certain, my servant Job and, um, to afflict him? Um, and Satan says, well, thanks, you just gave me the best person in all the land. I mean, you, you, by your own words, God, this, there's no man in the land like Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He's righteous. He's a servant of the living God. And Satan says to God, um, you've put a hedge around him. Why wouldn't he worship you? He has everything a man and a family could ever want. He's got 10 beautiful children. He's got a, a rock star wife. He's got a uh, successful business. He's got respect um, uh, in his community. And Satan says, um, he worships you because you gave him all that stuff. Let me afflict him. Let me take some things away from him. And he will curse you to, his, to your face, God. And as we know over the 39 chapters we've looked at is that Job has not cursed God to his face. 
In chapter 3, we see the, the great lament where Job, uh, for that um, heart-wrenching chapter, uh, laments his conception. He laments his birth. He wishes he had never been born. God, why would you allow me to be conceived or born if you knew that I would um, endure this type of suffering? And then chapters 4 through 26 is three cycles of conversation with Job and his three friends, his three comforters. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Do not name your kids Eliphaz, Zophar, or Bildad. Elihu is a much better name and a much better person. And he had this dialogue with these two friends. These three friends would um, stand on the, def- uh, the, the, the principle or the doctrine of definitive retribution. In other words, these friends are saying to Job over and over again, that reason that you've got suffering in your life, the reason that all this calamity has befallen you is because there must be some sin that, that, that you are concealing. They, they believed in, the, um, in this doctrine of definitive retribution of what you sow is what? What you reap. And it is a principle. It's a principle that we can hang our hats on, but it's not a promise. And then in chapters 27 to 31, this um, uh, Elihu Oh, no, Job gives his final defense, and then in chapters 32 through 37, Elihu, the prophet, is really a forerunner to God. Last week we heard God's first speech, today we're going to hear God's second speech, and Elihu over those five chapters was really um, paving the way for God. He was actually speaking for God, he was a prophet. And last week we looked at God's first speech to Job, and we see God turn the tables on Job and put Job on trial. And he asked Job this in chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What, Job, what God was saying is, who is this that questions the way I run the world? Are you questioning the way that I govern, the way that I counsel, the way that I run this world? And then after that, God pounds Job with rhetorical questions regarding his knowledge of God's governing of both inanimate and animate creation. And I'm not going to go, I want to do this in the first service, but I went a little bit long. But I think if you were not here, um, I would encourage you to listen to it or read it. But it's really instructive, um, and it really declares God's sovereignty and that he does run a good government, that, it, that everything he does is good, it's perfect. Um, and so in chapter 38, um, we see his inanimate creation. Chapter 39, we see his animate creation. And then after making in that first speech an irrefutable case that he has absolute control over all creation, God asked Job in chapter 40, verses 1 through 2, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? In other words, after all I just laid out regarding the good world that I created and that I controlled, do you still have a problem with the way that I run the universe? And the only words that Job could utter is that I am of small account I have already said too much. I'll shut up and let you continue talking, God. And then in chapter 40, verse 6, here in the second speech, we see the Lord defending his justice so that Job would see God more clearly. Job had previously said that he wanted to bring his case before God, the judge who he feels condemned him unfairly. And he says that God is guilty of injustice. Job here is calling for a mistrial. He'd like another hearing. But this time, Job says, I want to present my own case. I want to come before you, and I want to present my own case. Job is, in essence, saying that I am innocent of any offense that would require require a stiff sentence. 
this sentence that you gave me. I, I, I'm guilty, or excuse me, I'm innocent of any offense that would require the stiff sentence that you gave me. Then at the conclusion of God's second speech to Job, we're going to ponder, and this is for all of us, we're going to ponder Job's response and trust that the Lord would instruct us there. And as we read these verses, as Lori comes up to read these verses, there's a couple of key words that I want to bring to your attention that, that are really important. The first key word is Lord or Yahweh. The next set of key words is um, out of the storm. You see, it was the Lord, Yahweh, um, whose name was not mentioned since chapter 2. It was the covenant God of Israel that Israel was, was to come in the future. The covenant God of Israel, the promise-keeping God, the everlasting God, the personal God that spoke to Job out of the storm. And why is it important to know that he came out of the storm? Because Job in this passage, nothing has changed. He's still in the trash heap. He still has boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. His wife is still a grieving mess, understandably. He still doesn't know where his next dime is going to come from. He still does not have any business and has no employment. And his 10 children are still dead. With that, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to chapter 40, verse 6. Lori, if you'd come on up. Uh, And she's going to read through chapter 42, verse 6. And if you would join me in standing up for the reading of the word, please. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes, or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw Leviathan out with a fish hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons 
or his head with fishing spears. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near to him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made up of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. So in chapters 40, verse 6, actually starting in verse 8, the Lord starts his cross-examination with questions concerning his own justice. In verse 8, he asks Job, will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? And God is asking here, are you really challenging or even annulling my justice? Are you accusing me of being unfair? Are you trying to say that I, God, am guilty of injustice 
to prove that you are right? And then verses 9 through 14, we see a metaphorical courtroom. In it, God essentially is asking Job, why don't you take a crack at governing the world? If you think that you can do a better job, and you doubt my justice, why don't you take a crack at it? Let me ask you, have you ever been with somebody in a context where this somebody was really good at what they did? And you were really new and not very good at what they did. But you would look over their shoulder and tell them how to do it better. I think about uh, my wife, who is a really good cook. Some of you have enjoyed the fruits of her labor. And she's been cooking for a long time. I've been cooking for like kind of no time. But over the last three or four years, I've, take, I've been in the kitchen more than I probably should. And as she is cooking, more times than once, I am looking over her shoulder and going, why are you cutting it that way? I'm like an efficiency guy, and she's like a, you know, just makes it taste good. And so I'm, I'm constantly criticizing her in her cooking. But in her graciousness, she does not tell me to, she, she just asks me to gently leave the kitchen. But if I were her, I would say, why don't you just do it yourself? If you can do it better than me, you who knows nothing about cooking, I'll leave the kitchen and let you cook. Some of you might remember the movie Bruce Almighty. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but there are some good lessons in it. Bruce is paid, played by Jim Carrey, and he was just a normal guy. He was trying to climb the corporate ladder. He was trying to get from newscaster to news anchor. And at the beginning of the movie, Bruce's life partially falls apart, and he blames God for everything that went wrong. Bruce takes out all this frustration on God. And he says that God is like a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to, but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. And I think Job feels like that. I think sometimes we have felt like that, because we know no, no matter what is going on in our life, um, no matter how good or how bad God could, he, he could stop it. And I don't care if you are more comfortable with saying God allows it or God causes it. Um, either case, God can stop it. And, um, and Job is, is feeling the, the little light from that magnifying glass um, burning off his feelers. The movie, Bruce Almighty, takes an interesting turn when God, Morgan Freeman, gives Bruce a surprise visit and some surprise powers. The normal Bruce has become Bruce Almighty. And as you can imagine, it doesn't go very well. Job has been saying something similar to God ever since the world fell apart. God, why did you do it this way? And then he tells God that he is wrong. God, you are wrong and you are unfair. And in verse 9, God asks Job, do you have an arm and a thundering voice like me? You see, this, this arm and this thundering voice, what God is alluding to there is his power in actions to judge, rescuing the righteous, and punishing the wicked. Job, do you have an arm and a thundering voice like me? And he gives amazing imagery to this challenge in verse 10. God is saying, in effect, he's saying, take on my royal judge's robe. Take my, go my gown of majesty and dignity and pick up the gavel and get to work. Go ahead, Job, get to work. Clothe yourself with my glory and my splendor. And if you think you can do a better job than me, maybe you should take over being God just for a little bit. 
And in verse 14, he says, if you are able to do this, then I will acknowledge to you that you can save yourself. Because if you can govern the world, you can also save yourself. You can save yourself from this ash heap and the suffering that I have brought upon you. And we know that Job can't save himself. So God will continue giving Job a further glimpse into how the universe runs. And he does this through two portraits, two portraits of ultimate evil that God has saved Job from. And Job has no idea how evil is subdued or conquered. But in verse 15, God says, behold, behemoth. Right out of the blue. It's like the ice cream truck coming down the street and the music stops in the middle of a note. I mean, God just says, behold, behemoth. Exhibit A. He starts by describing this powerful creature in verses 15 through 24. And then over 34 unbroken verses in chapter 41, he gives a long and climactic description of the terrifying and majestic Leviathan. I want to remind you again, it's not important if these were real animals or if they were um, uh, uh, mystical animals, creatures. That's not the, that's not, that's not the narrator, narrator's point. So let's, let's first generally describe each of these creatures, and then we will try to figure out what they are and what they represent in this narrative. So look at chapter 40, verses 15, 15b. It says that behemoth is a creature which God has made as he made Job. He's created. Well, duh, right? Everything is created. Behemoth is created. Um, in verse 19a, it says that he is the first of the works of God. This does not mean that he was the first thing God created. What this, what this means is that he's a wonderful example of God's handiwork. He's a beautiful example of God's handiwork, 19A. 19B, he is not to be messed with. And only he who made him, God, can come near to him with a sword. Only God has the power to come near to behemoth and kill it. And we see in verses 20 through 21 that I'm going to actually read here. 20 and 21. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play, under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. There's a picture here that this creature is always present. He's always hungry. He is wandering to and fro. He's prowling around looking for something or someone to devour. And before we ask the question, who is Behemoth? Let's first look at the second portrait, Exhibit B, Leviathan. We see that in chapter 41, verses 1 through 34. In verses 1 through 5, we see that God has complete control over this creature. Whoever it may be, God's got complete control over this creature. In verses 1 through 2, God says to Job that, that no one can catch him, no one can bring him ashore, no one can tie him up. And he says in verse 3 that, that if you could, um, would he make pleas with you? Would he say, would you release me? Would he speak soft words to you? Verse 5b, can you put him on a leash and bring him home to your daughters as if he is under your control? Bringing him home and saying, look, little girls, what I brought home, I've got Leviathan. No worries, he's on a leash. In verse 10a, he says, there's no one so fierce that he dares stir him up. And we're, we're reminded here of the Lord of the Rings, where the foolish hobbit accidentally stirs up Belrog from the depths of Mount Moriah. And then verses 24 through 30, it says the mighty are afraid of Leviathan. 
verses 24 and 25, and he can't be conquered by the mightiest of humans. It says clubs and swords, which has a picture of close hand-to-hand combat, and spears or darts or javelins, which have the, the picture of weapons from afar, have no effect on, his impenet- on this impenetrable creature. No effect at all. There's nothing that we can throw at Leviathan to destroy him. The weapons of mankind, well, it says in verse 29, will just clang off of him as he laughs at their feeble and ineffective attempts to conquer him. Verses 31 through 32, he makes a sea boil and he thrashes around making a wake of death and destruction. So let's just take a quick look at who these creatures might be, these terrifying creatures. Typically, the behemoth is seen as a hippopotamus. If you look at most, most um, commentators, they would say that it's most likely hippopotamus. Most commentators would say that the Leviathan is uh, more than likely a crocodile. And I can, I can see where they get these descriptions from. Um, again, it's not that important. The behemoth um, is, a, is a powerful river and land animal, just like a hippo is. And the Leviathan has teeth like a crocodile, chapter 41, verse 14. And in addition, the, the techniques that are described here for hunting them correspond to the, I'm told, to the techniques for hunting a hippo or a croc. I don't know, has anybody ever hunted a hippo? Do they have hippo, like, preference points? I mean, can you, get, can you go hunt a hippo somewhere? I don't know that you can. A crocodile, I think you can eat crocodile. You can eat, eat alligator. However, I see serious difficulties with understanding them to be merely natural creatures. First of all, the hippo? The best example of God's handiwork? I mean, there's got to be better examples of God's handiwork. The Leviathan is described in verses 18 through 21 as fire-breathing and ocean-dwelling. Last time I looked, a crocodile does, never, does not breathe fire and does not live in the ocean. So the, the, the best way to look at it, if you're, is they're probably mythological or legendary creatures that represent... Okay, probably mythological, mythological or legendary, but they are definitely representing evil and Satan. They're a picture of evil and Satan. That's the purpose of the narrator. We're going to walk through this um, right now. Chapter 40, verses 15 through 24. Behemoth. Back to behemoth. He's a creature which I made as I made you. 15b. He is a wonderful example of God's handiwork. Satan was a beautiful picture of God's handiwork. He was, he was numero uno, uno in the squad of angels. He was the most beautiful. 19b, he is not to be messed with. And only he who made him, God, can come near him with a sword. Only God has the power to come near Satan and to kill this terrible creature. He is always hungry He is wandering to and fro. He's prowling around looking for something or someone to devour. Let's look at the Leviathan, chapter 41, verses 1 through 34. Verses 1 through 5. God has complete control over this creature. And I know it doesn't work in some of our theology, uh, but but the the picture here is, is that God has complete control over Satan. Satan can't do a thing that God either does not allow or instruct. You say potato, I say potato. And I know there can be some difference, but the point is, is that God could stop it, even if he allows it. In verses 1 through 2, can you catch him? Can you bring him to shore? Can you tie him up? We can't. God can. Satan is bound by God. He is bound, and he cannot harm the believer. 
Can you put them on a leash and bring them home to your daughters? Satan is on God's leash and cannot go beyond it and cannot get off of it. And that should bring us great comfort. He cannot go one centimeter past what God allows him to go out. And he can never get off of God's leash. 10a, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Satan is not to be stirred. He's not to be addressed. He's not to be engaged in any way. He's to be resisted. He's to be ignored. We're to walk around him, not walk up to him. We're not to pet him or provoke him. The mighty are afraid of him, verses 24 and 25. He can't be conquered by humans, not even the mightiest of humans. We have no weapons. There is nothing we can throw at Satan to destroy him. We can resist him. We can, uh, in Ephesians 6, it talks about our, our offensive weapon, which is the sword, which is his word. Satan's um, biggest, um, uh, the way he attacks us is he lies. He lies to us. And the way we refute those lies is understanding his word and believing his word and speaking his word. 31 through 32, the sea is a biblical sign of chaos. And Satan makes that chaos boil, verse 31 and 32. And he thrashes around, leaving a wake of death and destruction. His dwelling place is associated with evil, chaos, and danger. And if, if you had just a weak moment where you don't see evil and Satan in this, look at, look at verses 33 and 34. Let me read it, actually, chapter 41. On earth there is none like him a creature without fear. He sees everything that is on high. He is king over all the sons of pride. The world is full of proud and arrogant people that are trying to save themselves. But Satan is the proudest, and he's the ruler of them all. And he was once our ruler as well, but we no longer worship him. He no longer has any control over, his, um, over us, God's, God's sons and daughters. In Colossians 1, it says that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been delivered from Satan's grasp and we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. One day this serpent will be put away for good. Isaiah says this about Leviathan. Isaiah 27, 1. In that day the Lord with his hard, with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. One day, Satan will be put away forever. And Jesus said the same thing in John 12, 31. The ruler of this world will one day be cast out once and for all. In the meantime, he is firmly on God's leash and he cannot bring ultimate harm to God's friends unless God allows him or invites him to do it. But brothers and sisters, he can, you can never lose your salvation. He can never bring ultimate harm to you. And we're going to see that at the end of the book of Job uh, as well. Now, as we look at Job's response in chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, where we saw the first speech that ended in chapter 40, verse 5, the first speech ended with a sobered and silenced Job. His response in the second speech provides a radically deeper and stronger one. Job speaks of three things in these six verses. He, thinks about, he talks about things he now knows. He speaks about things he did not know before. And he speaks about the one who he is now seen clearer than he's ever seen before. Ch uh, uh, verse 2, chapter 42. 
He speaks about things he now knows. He now knows that God can do all things. And his good purposes can't be thwarted. That there is nothing that that will stop God. His good purposes, even his purposes that don't feel good to us, they can't be stopped. Next thing that Job speaks, things he did not know before. Verse 3, Job echoes God's rebuke to him at the start of the first speech when God asked him, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Who is this that that, um, out of ignorance um, doubts my good governance of this good world? And now Job admits that he's done exactly that which the Lord had accused him of. He had indeed spoken what I did not understand. He says, I spoke what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. The word translated wonderful speaks of matters only God can do. Speaking, first of all, of God's mighty power. And then things that only God can understand refer to God's wisdom. So Job is acknowledging that God has ultimate power and ultimate wisdom. And here's the big crescendo. He now speaks of one that he has seen. This is a believer. This is a believer that knows God. And Job says in verse 4, let me go back. Um, Job echoes God's introductory challenge of both speeches. Here I will speak. I will question you and, make, and you make it known to me. And when I first read this, actually I thought it was Job saying to God, God, here I will speak. I will question you, God, and you make it known to me. That's not what's happening here. Job is actually repeating what God had already said. Job was reflecting on how God told him to stop talking and just listen. The NIV actually has a better reading. The NIV says this. It's Job speaking to God. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. So Job now focuses in verse 5 and 6 on what he heard when Job speak. Job contrasts previous hearing with a new seeing. Don't miss this, that, that, that Job has heard of God, but now he sees God. Job utters these incredible words, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I had you all wrong, he's saying. I had you all wrong. What I had heard is now better informed by what I see. Before these terrible events in Job's life, his knowledge of God was by hearing of the ear. And we know Job was a, was a genuine believer. So he must have heard about God in order to believe about God. And he may have known about it from the stories of Adam and Eve. I don't know. He might have known about the stories of God saving Noah and his family. Um, Job might even fit somewhere in a little bit after Abraham. We're not sure. He might have heard about that Abraham was saved by faith. And it was counted to, he, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. But additionally, and in context of this book, Job had heard of and believed in an almighty God that was righteous and all-powerful, and therefore he might have come to some certain expectations or certain conclusions. So if you are a man or woman living without a Bible, and you know there's a powerful God, you know there's a sovereign God, You know there's a God who can do what he pleases. You would would start to believe in the doctrine, I believe, of retribution. You see, Job believed that, that 
certain crimes required certain punishment always, and certain virtue required certain reward always. And to some extent, Job, like his friends, did in fact believe in the doctrine of definitive retribution. But Job's friends believed differently than Job. And, and let me just walk you through this because every one of us at different times in our walk are, either believe what Job's friends believed or we believe what Job believes. I mean, we, we have weak times, always. And here's what Job's friends believed. You do wrong. You do evil. You sin. On this earth, there will be punishment every time. So they could look at Job and honestly say, Job, God took your kids. He took your business. You got boils from the crown of your head to the sole of your foot. You had to have done something wrong. Job subscribes to the um, doctrine of definitive retribution in a different way. Job says, God, I did everything right. There was no man on the earth like me. I was blameless. I was upright. I did everything you said. I had a great reputation. I don't deserve this. I did what you asked me to do. Where's my blessing? So they both had had different sides of the same coin, of the coin of the doctrine of definitive retribution. And Job, I believe, was believing the lies of Satan. He was listening to the lies of Satan, and he started to believe them. And he embraced these lies. The more he embraced these lies, he objected more and more and accused God of being an unjust judge. He heard all of this by the hearing of the ear. But now he says, my eyes see you. And this is kind of strange. God's two speeches were speeches. They were words. He said, I always heard of you, but now I see you. How do you hear with your eyes. One thing that we know for sure is that Job had no mystical vision of God. He has not had a vision like Isaiah's later vision of the Lord lifted up in the temple or Ezekiel's strange strange vision of the Lord on the chariot throne. Job has literally not seen anything different. He has not had a vision of God. He's still in the trash heap. He's still surrounded by his miserable comforters. Elihu is still around. Yet he has heard the Lord, and now through an oral vision, he now sees the Lord. And we got to ask, what did he see? What did he see? What changed? His circumstances didn't change. But something clicked and changed in Job's heart. And I just listed out a few things that I've observed over the last 42 chapters, um, things that the Lord is working out in my own life that, that, that Job saw that he had probably not heard before. One of them is that God can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. And the assurance of this brings the comfort he needs in suffering and the encouragement he craves when terrified by evil. It brings a strange comfort, doesn't it? To know that our good and sovereign God, that there's no purpose of His that can be thwarted. Next, He's the creator and sustainer of all. He has a good creation and He's sustaining that good creation. And what He's sustaining first and foremost is you and I. The song we just sung, He Will Hold Us Fast. That's a, that's a doctrine of eternal security. 
that there's nothing, believer, that you did that was good enough for him to save you. And there's nothing you can do that's bad enough for him to leave you. Amen? Next, God is in complete control of everything, including Satan. Satan can go no farther than God's leash allows. God uses Satan in his evil ways for God's good purposes and the good of his people. And I want to, I want to just, just say something here because I've, um, we've had some great discussions in our community group and I've had discussions with some of you and, and I know some of you are, are having a hard time with the difference between what God allows and what he causes. And I would just, can I just say, um, don't, get, don't get too hung up on that. Um, God is good. God is sovereign. God is the creator and the sustainer. Whether he, if he allows something, he can allow it not to happen again. The point is, is he is in sovereign control of everything that happens in the universe. He's not the author, he's not the approver of evil, but he does use it for his good purposes and for the good of his people, you and I. Next thing that Job learned is that God's ways are not our ways. That we can't bank on the doctrine of definitive retribution. We can't bank on it. Because if you bank on it, you're going to end up uh, pissed off at God. If you bank on it, if you live the, uh, a life um, in submissive obedience to God and He uh, determines to bring some calamity upon you, you're going to be ticked off. If you stand firmly on the um, definitive doctrine of retribution. Now this, doc- this doctrine of sowing and reaping, we, we actually should sow righteousness. You who have been bought by the blood of Christ... You who are loved unconditionally, you who have been adopted, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, you should want to sow seeds of righteousness. And God, though, is not obligated in any way to bless us in any way, shape, or form because we, det- we decide to sow seeds of righteousness. As we're going to see next week on Easter Sunday, we will have ultimate and final and unbelievable blessing when we're in the new heavens and new earth. Now, might he bless us on this earth? And does he bless us on this earth? Does he give good gifts to his children? Absolutely. Can we count on him? Yes, you can count on him at some level. In the person of Jesus Christ, you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Next thing that he learned is that God is a covenant keep, a, a covenant promise-keeping God who has his eyes on the righteous. His eyes never leave us. God may allow discipline in our lives, but it's only so that we would know him and be able to surrender to him and trust him in greater ways. Next thing you learn is that God does speak in the middle of the storm. Oftentimes we hear and see clearer in storms. I know that's been true in my own life. Next thing and last thing that I see that he saw is that he never got the answers to why. He never got the answers to why. Why, God, did you allow calamity to speak, to, 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 to smote me? But he knows that in the storm of life, he will always have God. He will always have God. God's eyes never leave the righteous. He delivers the righteous in their affliction, out of their affliction. And there's a couple of things that we know, brothers and sisters, that Job didn't. 
the most evil and unjust deed in the history of the human race, the moment when Leviathan and the behemoth seemed ultimately victorious was the moment that was brought about, as it says in Acts 2.23, by the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. And that was the moment of the behemoths and Leviathan's ultimate defeat with God's people being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. And then we're going to finish at verse 6. Therefore. We've got to ask, what's the, the therefore, therefore? Job says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job has continually and resolutely defended his innocence. So Job repenting here for his sin, it's a strange response, isn't it? Because he's been declaring his innocence all the way along. But he realizes that he has spoken of things that he did not understand. He has spoken wrongly of God. And everything that befell him was from the loving hand of the Father who wants to reveal more of himself to Job and to you and I. Is that an alarm? It's like, okay, it's time. It's, t- it's like, done. Okay, worship team. <laughs> I, I actually need that. So if that was, I mean, we're, we're in the home stretch here. We just got about 45 more minutes. Is the food still warm? <laughs> we, got, we got about two minutes. So we see Job being brought low here in verse 6. He's being brought low, and it says that he actually despises himself. And in our culture, um, despising ourselves is not good. Um, it's, it's not good. I mean, we, we want to, we like, um, speak, um, we want to affirm ourselves. But this is a good thing. But here's what's a bad thing. Going around thinking we're inferior to our fellow human beings is a bad thing. It's a destructive thing. That kind of inferiority complex, complex does not affirm that we're all made in the image of God. However, it's a good thing when we think this way in regards to God. When we bow down low and grasp how great He is in comparison to how small we are, it's a good thing because it's true. You ever been an extra in a movie? I was an extra in the, in the, in the uh, miniseries called Centennial. And if you watch that, I can probably point to you like a nanosecond, like there. There. And we're, we're just extras, folks. I mean, we're extras in whom he graciously brought into his story. I mean, we're not extras in the sense that he doesn't love us and we're not important to him. But we are so small. He is the main act. He is, it's all about him. So it's a good thing when we bow low and we grasp how great he is in comparison to how small I am. David prayed this in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And I want to finish with this. It's a mark of the love of God that he brings Job low. It's actually a loving thing that God did. For this is where a creature should be. This is where we should be low. This is true of us as well. Oftentimes we consider good exam results, good job offers, um, certain successes as blessings, and they may be blessings. But actually the most loving, compassionate, and merciful thing that God can do is to keep us humble and low so that we are always trusting, abiding, and leaning on Him. And lastly, this, this repent, it says that 
that therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. And the word repent translates for the same, to the, from the same root word that his friends used for comfort. And Job, in a real way, is finding comfort in his repentance. He's finding comfort in knowing that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God is loving, and that we are small in comparison to that. Remember this, brothers and sisters, nothing has changed in Job's circumstances. Nothing. Yet he humbles himself, he repents, and he finds ultimate comfort. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, your holy word. Um, God, thank you for the book of Job. Um, thank you that you are a father who gives good gifts. And the best gift we'll ever receive um, is the gift of being justified by faith and adopted into your forever family. And Lord, uh, we know that your ways are not our ways. Um, Lord, we, we will never understand fully why you do and why you allow what you do and allow. We, we will never understand that. But God, I pray that, um, that even though we may not uh, get answers in our sufferings as to why, you've allowed us to know who. That because of Jesus' sacrifice and his victorious resurrection from the dead, the veil has been torn. And we have access that we can confidently come before the throne of, throne of grace where, where our daddy is always waiting with open arms to bring us comfort, to deliver us from any affliction in the midst of our affliction. And Lord, we await the great gift of our resurrection that was secured by the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. We await our resurrection where we will finally be with you, the giver of the best gift, where you will dwell bodily with us and we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no more suffering, there's no more tears, and there's no more death. Until that time, God, would you strengthen us to live lives in full submission to you, our good and glorious God. And God's people say, Amen. Amen.